rewind. We're in Hebrews 13, verses 17 through 25. Uh, we're going to finish the book of Hebrews this, this morning. Next week, we're probably going to start the book of James uh, because we need to teach the book of James. That's one reason. But also, James plays into about this time period, 63 A.D., uh, because right around, we do not know when this letter was written. Uh, I'm going to give you an indication at the end of this chapter uh, mentioning Timothy. It could be around 68 A.D., and you're going to have to make a decision. You're not going to know for sure, but we do know, as we've said so many times, 66 to 70 A.D. were the Jewish wars. In 66 A.D., the Jews are leaving, going across the Jordan up to Decapolis. John and Mary are heading towards Ephesus, which is where Timothy's going to be, uh, in 63 A.D. If they're leaving in 68 A.D., uh, they're walking through Roman troops, you know, legions of Roman troops, which, again, if that's the case, if they're writing this letter to the Jews in Jerusalem in 68 A.D., uh, you're in the middle of a war. The church is not going to be talking like this. There's going to be a lot more information about, instead of just standing firm in their faith, they're just trying to survive. The Jews are killing each other. The Romans are coming. So it just doesn't make sense. I'm not saying it can't be. It just doesn't make sense that it's 68 A.D., 66 AD, it would be kind of bad timing because you got a, a letter going to the church of Jerusalem telling them how to live and in their society, but at the same time, they're packing their bags, getting ready to leave. So it's kind of like a letter, oh, I don't just put it here. They don't have time to read it. 63 AD seems better uh, for me, but that doesn't mean, that's, that's me interpreting these things. Uh, but nonetheless, if it is 63 AD, and this first verse we're going to see, chapter 13, verse 17, is going to talk about obeying your leaders. One of the leaders of the church, since the early days of the church in the book of Acts, James, Jesus' brother, was one of the leaders. Now, he will be executed in 63 A.D., uh, being pushed off the Temple Mount. Apparently, if this is the temple, looking down at the temple from the top, this would be the north. Here's the temple right here. Here's the western wall today. That's that little section they worship at. Here is where the trumpeting stone, this is where a priest would stand. There's steps, as we've talked about before, going up to the Temple Mount. There's gates coming in here, including Robinson's Arch right here. There's a trumpeting stone where the, it says, for the trumpeter uh, that they found, a little notch in the wall that the trumpeter would stand and play his trumpet this direction, uh, where the, the priestly quarters was, some of the main part of the city was, and where the worshipers would be coming in to the temple. And that's where they announced the the Sabbath day, they'd announce the, uh, the beginning of feast, the end of feast. It appears they put John, James right here. The Well, I, we, I was just reading right here out of the framework book. Um, 63 AD, during the reign of high priest Ananus, James was taken to a high point of the temple. Uh, we're going to assume it's here. I mean, this was a high point. This was a high point, but this is out looking the Kidron Valley. This is looking up to the north. This would be, this is looking towards the wall. We don't know. Uh, of, the, of the temple to announce. He was supposed to announce to the Jewish crowd coming to the Passover, not to follow the false teaching concerning Jesus being the Christ. So James had a reputation among the Christian Jews, but also among the non-believing Jews because he was still worshiping. Notice he is on the Temple Mount. He was still going to the Temple Mount, participating at some level of keeping the Jewish holidays, not trusting in it, but they, he never forsook the actual temple worship, which is interesting with this book going on. It talks about how he was constantly praying. Even the book of Acts, where's the church meeting? They're meeting in Solomon's Colonnade. And Solomon's Colonnade would be all around, there's columns like this, all the way around the Temple Mount. And they had beams and then a roof covering it. So all the way around the outside of the Temple Mount would be a column, a colonnade. And you could stand there to get protection from the sun or you could schedule a meeting at this point, at this point. The church was actually meeting on the Temple Mount in the book of Acts in Solomon's colonnade. Now by this time in 63 AD or whenever the book of Hebrews is being written, they're also meeting in people's homes. They've spread so they've got a community and they're coexisting with the temple worshipers and the Christians who also see Jesus uh, being fulfilled in the temple sacrifices. And James apparently never really just forsook the temple. Paul, in 62, 57 AD, he is actually up on the Temple Mount making a, taking a vow, uh, taking pangs for someone else's 
you know, haircut and the, the, they're taking a vow. And that's when a riot breaks out and he's taken up into Fort Antoniah. So Paul comes to Jerusalem and immediately goes to the Temple Mount. And it didn't work out as Paul had planned. But nonetheless, uh, that, that's that consideration. So James was on the Temple Mount right here in 63 AD. And as the Jewish Passover crowd is coming up the steps and up Robinson's archway, he's supposed to say to them uh, that... Uh, not to follow the false teaching concerning Jesus being the Christ. Instead, when he got up there and had the microphone, of course it wasn't an actual microphone, uh, James announced to the crowd that Jesus was the Christ. He sat at God's right hand and will return in the clouds of heaven. Uh, at that, that's not what they wanted him to say to the Jewish crowd coming for Passover. The scribes and the Pharisees then pushed James off the Temple Mount. And if you've ever been here, it's, you know, it's high. And it's, it's high in the sense that it's going to hurt to fall, uh, but it's also not so high that you're going to just be mashed a tiny piece, not like falling out of an airplane. Uh, you, you know, he's going to survive the fall. Uh, not that he would have been okay by any means, but he's going to be alive. The scribes and Pharisees then pushed James off the Temple Mount and proceeded to throw stones at him and then beat him with clubs until he was dead uh, at the base of the temple. As James prayed for the people, he was clubbed in the head and eventually died. Now, if you want to just keep pushing this, uh, they have found, and it's a sarcophagus, not sarcophagus, an ossuary box, which is a stone box, and you know the routine. They'd put the, they'd put the body in a tomb, lay it out, wrapped with spice until a year later, until all the flesh was decayed. Then the family would come back, and they'd have a second ceremony where they'd pick up the bones and put it in an ossuary box, uh, I'm trying to see if I've got any pictures of them sitting around here. And it's just a stone box, and the bones would be put in there, a lid put on, and then set in the family tomb shelf. So you'd have a family tomb, but you'd have one or two or four or several burial benches, depending on how many people were laid out at the same time. But you'd have a collection of boxes of bones, and they'd have names on them, potentially. Uh, they found Caiaphas, who tried Jesus. They found his family tomb. They found his his box they found his son's box they've got the remains of the bones i mean they've got they found the family priestly tomb they did find a few years ago uh, a, a, a box a, an ossuary that says james a brother of jesus on it and it was cut in there in arabic uh and it, it appears, you know, it's very similar to Hebrew, and it appears to be legitimate. So now we've got, it wasn't found on a, an archaeological site. It was found in the marketplace. Someone had found it, put, brought it in the market. And then now the question comes, did someone engrave it, you know, make it look cooler than it was, uh, make it more valuable? And, of course, there's a lawsuit. There's a court case. It went back and forth. Biblical Archaeology Review covered it. And in the end, the, the patina, the patina is the growth that happens on an old object that if you cut into something, you're going to cut through the patina and you're going to have a fresh stone. Well, this appeared to have had the patina still in place. And they said, well, they faked the patina. You can sometimes fake patina, make it look aged. It went on and on. And ultimately, in the end, although it seems unbelievable, the, the scientists, the archaeologists, the court case said this man has a legitimate osary box from the first century and it is a legitimate inscription. It says, James, brother of Jesus. Now, it's like, well, that could, there's many people named James, many people named Jesus. But what is unique is you usually don't put on your tombstone the name of your brother or sister. You put the name of your father. You know, James, the son of Joseph. Would, if you would expect James, son of Joseph. But Joseph isn't the well-known person because it says James, son of Jesus. It's like, this really isolates it to one particular family of someone that would be known as Jesus' brother and not the son of Joseph. And so they have a potentially found uh, that box that his bones were buried in. Anyway, that's, and that, that would fit with the sequence. 63 AD, there's still time to bury him. There's still time to collect the bones. And uh, the, there was no bones in the ossuary when they found it. But nonetheless, we'll start, this kind of, I'm tying this together. We're going to start the book of James next week. Uh, what he writes to the, the, the believers, but also he would be one of the leaders at this time in the church, either just having been pushed off the Temple Mount or just months, weeks away from it's going to happen right at this time. So here we go. Um, oh, hey, I'll read this to you also in the uh, framework, just to read this so you get a little more accurate. 
um, <clears throat> I write, in 63 AD, Simeon, bishop of Jerusalem, uh, who was the son of Clopas, mentioned in John 19.25, as the husband of Mary. Clopas was the brother of Joseph, which means Simeon was Jesus' cousin. That's the pastor or the bishop of this church. That's in, just in church as you go through who the pastors are and the bishops. And it's recorded in, in Eusebius and other writers. After James' death in 63 AD, Simeon became the leader of the church. His, so it would be James's cousin. Uh, the living apostle, apostles and disciples of Jesus assembled in Jerusalem and chose Simeon to fill James' place as the bishop of the Jerusalem church. Simeon resisted the Judaizers, just like this book is talking about. I mean, they're talking about resisting. And they're not fighting him. They're just like, we're not going to follow your system. We're, we follow Christ. We've got a new covenant. We've got a new sacrifice. We've got better promises. We're not going to come back to this. So they're resisting the Judaizers. Uh, and in 66 AD, Simeon then led the church out of Jerusalem to Pella as the Roman armies approached. And so that's, you know, that I got that. That's not like I discovered that. I got that out of, you know, I was collecting information. So nonetheless, uh, this is right around the time you've got two leaders right here that we can talk about at least you've got james and you've got simeon and of course you're going to have others because each there's going to be leaders in each home church and there's going to be homes where the church meets and so you're going to have members if you i don't want to say members like they sign up but they're going to people are going to be meeting in these homes so when they greet eventually they're going to greet the leaders and the believers they're going to greet all the leaders each you know each home would have some kind of a leader and there's going to be believers meeting in each of the homes and so this letter is being written to this group it's not necessarily being written to james or simeon or they're being written to this group and so we would assume and that's why we probably have a copy of it we would assume there's be the original letter that's going to come I would assume if we're going to, it's going to come to James, it's going to come to the headquarters or, or Simeon, and then they're going to be making copies of it. And they're going to be, they're not just pass one letter around, they're going to be making copies of it. And it's unique for us, if we need to make a copy, we take it to the copy machine. So we've got copy machines. Because of this climate, this culture, when they, and it wasn't just they want to make a copy of this one letter, that they would make copies of Roman decrees or Roman laws or information or family records you'd have people, there was an occupation, it would be a, a scribe, and you would just copy uh, things out. Paul uses scribes, Peter uses scribes, and they'd write a letter. And so it's interesting to think, uh, as we talked about when we went through the book of Ephesus, there are some that the book of Ephesus, it, it doesn't say to the church of Ephesus, it just begins the letter. Uh, and you can see this actually taking place in the book of Revelation, where you've got seven cover letters for the book of Revelation. It's just that they've collected all seven cover letters to the church of Thyatira, to the church of Smyrna, to the church of, and they write, it's like John, again, I, I, you know, I don't want to act like I know all about this, but John's not necessarily going to sit down and write, you know, uh, those seven cover letters, all one right after the other. He may have had the book of Revelation and then wrote to the church of Ephesus and then wrote a personal letter to the the angel or the messenger of the church of Ephesus would have been the leader, the bishop, the pastor, and he gives them this advice. And then, so he would have had a copy, the book of Revelation, seven times, put the cover letter on, sent it to Ephesus, wrote, the, wrote it again, copied it, and put the Smyrna letter on it. And so he would have sent out seven letters. I mean, that's one way. He could have wrote seven cover letters, put it on one book, and sent it to the mainland and says, make your own copies. You know, you got a copy machine in the church office, make a copy of it. Um, but somewhere someone would have made seven copies. If John's doing it himself, or if John wrote, yeah, wrote seven copies and wrote seven cover letters and sent them off, or wrote one book and then wrote seven cover letters and then sent them to the church offices, you know, and they wouldn't have sent it to the printer. They would have sent it to the scribes. They would have started copying them. They would have sent them out. Again, something like that happened, and that would have happened most likely with Ephesus and he Hebrews also. I would assume someone's going to make copies. They just have one copy passing it around. They would have made several letters, which helps us understand how we end up getting the book of Revelation, how we end up getting the book of Ephesus and the book of Hebrews, because once they wrote it, they want just one copy floating around. Even uh, Paul, when he writes to uh, Colossae, he says, make sure you read the letter of the Laodiceans and likewise have them read your letter. So in other words, and they're not going to say, okay, we read it, now they're going to just send it up there. They're going to what? 
copy it and send them a copy and make sure you get a copy of the Laodicean. So there's a Laodicean letter. He wrote to the Laodicean church, Paul did. We would assume it's similar to the Colossians letter or the Ephesians letter, uh, but it would be nice to actually know what he's saying to the Laodicean church, and we don't know that. We're talking about Paul, not John writing to it. Okay, (laughs) Hebrews chapter 13, uh, beginning in verse uh, 17. Uh, last week we talked about them being, you know, Jesus was crucified outside the city, just like, and that's where the blood was sacrificed, that's where he died. They're going to need to join, most likely have to join. If you're going to follow Jesus, you're not going to be accepted in the city. You're going to be outside the city. That's where your sacrifice is. That's where Jesus' blood was shed. That's where you're going to have to go. And then they're probably questioned about, well, yeah, but you don't have a temple. Where's your sacrifices? Where's your rituals? And that's where he says, our, our uh our sacrifices are our good deeds. Our sacrifices are thanksgiving. Our deeds or our sacrifices are a life that has been transformed. And it matches perfectly with Romans when it says, you know, uh, your, your uh, reasonable act of worship is a transformed life. Renew your mind and start living a transformed life. It's no longer offering, you know, dead animals and, and blood on an altar. It's now you being transformed and living like Christ at this time. And again, it's like, well, that's not really a sacrifice. Well, yeah, it is because you are dying to your old way, and Paul calls you a living sacrifice. You're living, continuing to sacrifice. You're not paying for your sins. You're not paying for your salvation, but you continue laying yourself down and picking up the ways of Christ with, a, with your attitude, with your good deeds, with your living in reality according to the Word of God and what God has created you're, in a sense, actually resisting the world system, which is a sacrifice, which is an effort. It would be so much easier. Would it not be easier if you could just go to church, light a candle, put in some money, and say, I'm done here. Uh, I am a Christian. Why? I lit a candle. I gave them some money. I said a prayer, said the chant, sang the song, and I'm out, and nothing changes. If I need to go back next week and do the ritual again, I'm a very religious person. Yes, you are, but you're not saved. You're not transformed. You should be over here in the life of Christ being transformed, living daily as a sacrifice, a living sacrifice offered to God. And so he actually makes, as he mentions here, uh, verse 15, through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. I mean, that's it. What do we need to do? What kind of, well, you need to continue to confess Jesus Christ, not just verbally saying it, but that would be included, but confess Jesus as Christ in the way you live, in the way you think. Continue to have your lips doing things that would confess your commitment to Christ. And do not forget to do good and to share with others. So doing good deeds, sharing with others. For with such, here it is, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. That is your Christian act of worship. It matches Romans chapter 12, the opening verses. Now, chapter 17, verse 13. Chapter 13, verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Interesting words there. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us. We are sure that we have a clear conscience. In other words, pray for us. I'll come back and explain this in detail. But we are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honorably in every way. I particularly urge you to pray so that I may be restored to you soon. May the God of peace, now here's his uh, doxology, May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And that is, again, the closing. But now he says one more word, like now it's becoming a letter. So far what we've had is, is a sermon, or we've had uh, uh, what some people call a homily. It's like he's, he's kind of teaching. It'd be like a, a, a verbal instruction. Now it's turning into a letter, as he's cl- because he's mailing it as a letter. He's now turning into a letter. Brothers, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written you only a short letter. 
I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released. Now, this will be an interesting conversation we get here because, well, not really because we don't know anything about it. I mean, we're going to have just speculation. Timothy has been released. Released from what? The hospital? I mean, what's he been released from? Prison? I mean, mean, we don't know what he's been released from. We don't know where he's been released. Uh, I mean, we can make some assumptions, but it's going to be frustrating because uh, that's, that's a great information, but it's like, where's it at and how long's he been and and then if he arrives soon also so this author's not with him he's waiting for timothy to be released and arrive to this location i will come with him to see you here's another clue greet all your leaders and all god's people those from italy send you their greeting now again i'll show you that that from italy can mean those in italy ah so they are in italy they're in rome most likely or it can mean just like it says here those from italy which means they the, a group migrated somewhere say ephesus or i don't know anywhere and there's a group of believers that have the same culture and they're all from italy and he's with that group right now saying hey i'm with the group from italy in ephesus so the group from italy says hey say hello to everybody it's like, so you're not in Italy. No, we're in Ephesus with the Church of Italians. It's like, I mean, it could mean that. And it's, it's, it's ambiguous in the Greek. I mean, it's not like confusing. It makes complete sense to the reader. But we're looking at this, you know, from 2,000 years. It's like, are they in Italy or are they with a group of people that come from Italy? And so then there again, it's frustrating. He just stays there. And to come down and say, I know exactly what that means. That's nice. But you can't become, you know, dogmatic about it because that may not be, that's not exactly what, the, you're going to have to get something else to support your idea. And so far, I don't, I, well, I will look at it. And then he ends, grace be with you all. And then uh, sometimes it has the word amen there. Okay, so we have the notes right now. That was the NIV translation. Now the English standard, we'll start teaching through this. And you'll see some differences in translation. Chapter 13, verse 17 on the notes from the English standard version, obey your leaders and submit to them so here we go we're talking about leaders previously last week he talked about leaders and he says lead leading leaders uh he talked about leaders saying remember their faith and the outcome of their life these had probably passed on these would probably be the early leaders and remember what they did how they faced obstacles how they had faith how they stayed true to the end and use that as an example. Just like you had examples in chapter 11, you've also got Jesus as an example. You also have your own leaders as an example. They passed away. Now in verse 17, these leaders are alive, and it says uh, you're supposed to obey them and uh, submit to them, uh, for they are keeping watch over your souls. They are watching like a shepherd, they're watching, being responsible for their account. Well, right here, over your souls, as those who will be given will have to give an account. They're watching souls, and they're going to have to give an account. And a, an account means it, it, from the word it has the word logos in it, which means verbal. They're going to have to explain. Now you can see Paul talking to the Thessalonians and others about you know, or the Philippians. What is our joy? He says, what is the joy that I'm looking forward to? He says, is it not you? When I stand before Jesus, he says, and I'm evaluated, I hope they will turn around and say, and here's the Philippians. Look, not only did I get them saved, but look what they produced. I, I did this. Now again, not bragging on himself, just that his ministry was to help these people be productive. And if Paul's standing there in front of the Lord, and there's no one with him, it's kind of like, well, you're an apostle. Yes, I was an apostle. I was a, a Bible teacher. Well, Who'd you bring along? Oh, no one listened. No one came. It, nothing. It's like, oh, well, go stand over there. Where Paul's saying, my joy is going to be on the day. It's like, how did I do? Well, there they are. Let them speak for me. And so it makes here again, these leaders are going to have to give an account of how they did watching your souls. Now, this can become very, very powerful in the hands of a pastor uh, uh who again and i you're gonna have to judge the basis of this this can actually go feed into the idea of the old i don't know if it's around anymore i've been out of touch for so long 
uh, but there used to be that, that, that trend of shepherding. You ever, you ever heard the word shepherding? Uh, where they would, to, you'd have to get permission. Your pastor is the overseer. It says right here, overseer of your souls. And you'd have to get clearance from your pastor on every decision you made. I mean, from who you married to if you're going to buy a car to how, you know, if you're going to change churches. I mean, it was like, I mean, well, holy smokes. I mean, that's, uh, that, I mean, you better have a Holy Ghost going there because what pastor who's gone to seminary is trained to help you make all your life decisions? I mean, they've gone to seminary. Hopefully they've learned the Bible, but anymore they just learn how to be a good leader and probably learn, you know, steps of manipulating and leading and how to control a crowd or what. I don't know. I've never gone to seminary that way. But nonetheless, uh, you can see if you're going to make a business decision or uh, buy a house or a life change, they could start really meddling in your life. And so there's, there's that point, which I think is an extreme. And again, I may be on the other spectrum of the other side of like, okay, here's your Bible teaching, no cookies, go home. You know, it's like, it's like this is it. And so what, what I would tend, I would tend to be, uh, the leaders are responsible for giving you the word. And then again, these guys are probably, I, would, I know, they're doing much more than I'm doing as what, if you want to call me a leader. Uh, they're teaching the word and then, they're living with the people. They're, they're cooperating. They're helping. They're living their lives among the flock uh, as one of the members, as a leader. I like to just bail out right here and just give the people the truth, the word, and again, trust the Spirit of God. Trust that you are born again, and that word is going to give you guidance. You're going to be able to make decisions. So if there's a pendulum of this extreme shepherding, I'm probably way over here on the other side of the pendulum of like, uh, here's the Bible verses, here's what I think, but I don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, good luck with this, and, and, and go with that. So I'm, I'm on the other side of the pendulum, possibly. So I would not necessarily put myself in this category of a leader. I'm kind of like ducking behind the title of a Bible teacher, and then I'm, I'm out of the picture. Uh, now that's not good or bad, that's just the way it is. Uh, it's like, well, you should be a, uh, yeah, I don't even know what I should be. That's what I'm doing. But nonetheless, there is this scary part of if you put yourself in the position of leader, the leader is going to have to give an account. And that means it, it's just like we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account. It's the same idea, the same words are being used. And it means everyone, every believer will have to give an account for his life. It's not like you're just, I, I, don't, I can again, judge me as I'm talking and you keep thinking about Bible verses. You're saved by grace, faith in Jesus Christ. You are now a child of God. You're part of the family. You're going to heaven. You'll be with Jesus for eternity. Yay, all right. But between now and then, you're going to be living a life supposed to be maturing, transforming, not conforming to the world, but being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ and producing fruit. And between that moment of salvation, yeah, I'm born again, I'm going to heaven, and standing before the judgment seat of Christ, you're going to have to give an account of what you accomplished, not to earn your salvation, but some would say to prove your salvation, but I, I would say more like to use your salvation, to use your new life. What have you done for the kingdom of God? Now that you've been born again, what have you done to produce fruit? And it's like, and you're going to have to give an account for that. You're going to have to give an account of how you saved yourself because Jesus did that. You came to Christ by faith. But now that you're born again, he gave you the spirit of God, he gave you other believers. He gave you the word of God. And what did you do? It's like he, he's got something for you. He's got a calling. For, in fact, he's going to come up here in these verses. He's got something he wants you to do. Not what I'm doing. It's, it's unique. And you're going to have to say how you, what you did. Uh, and we're not necessarily talking about, swell, you know, explain all of your sins. I don't know what's going to happen at the judgment seat of Christ. But it doesn't seem sin is going to be an issue. And again, this is me going theological because sin was an issue on the cross. So sin has been taken care of. In fact, people going, being rejected by Christ and going to the lake of fire, sin is not an issue, potentially. It's their rejection of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus, now you've got to add, now again, you get Calvinism and, and Reformed theology and where you're at on the spectrum. Jesus died for the sins of the world. If, 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 if you push it to a certain level, the sins of the world have been paid for. So no one's going to be, in a sense, I don't want to say accountable for their sins because Jesus paid for them. He either did or he didn't. That's, that's a very barbaric way of saying it. So when I stand before the judgment seat of Christ, it's not going to be like, what about all these sins? It's like, well, you're born again. Your sins are taken care of. You've got the life of God 
what did you do? Where's the fruit? And now you got that good and worthless servant. You know, they, I, I just hid your money. Here it is. Here's, I, I'm saved. I, I just don't have to go to hell. It, it, that would be that, that, the servant that buried the, the talents that was given to him. Or you've got the person that is sent to the lake of fire. Ah, they've got all these sins. Well, if Jesus paid for those sins, they're not being sent to the lake of fire for their sins. They're being sent to the lake of fire for rejecting Christ. Now, again, if you get into limited atonement in all this, when it says he died for the sins of the world, that just means he died for the people that God was going to choose for salvation. Those that he wasn't going to choose, he didn't waste his time dying for them because if he would have died for their sins, well, then they would have to have been saved. And it's like, and now, that, now you're getting into a philosophy where, okay, I, yeah, I, I don't buy into that. I don't, probably because I don't understand it. Maybe I'm not smart enough to be a Calvinist. But uh, that, that's what they'd be saying like that. Again, and so now you will be rewarded for your production. And also, it appears you're going to be rewarded for your works. Meaning if you've, if you've committed these sins and, and, and behaved in a certain way, you're going to be responsible for your level of depravity. So there is something going on in that. There's going to be levels, apparently, there's levels of, not everybody's going to be equal in the place of torment. Not everyone is going to be equal in glory. Now I say, whoa, whoa, not everyone's going to be equal. That's, we're Americans, everyone's equal. Okay, yeah, you all have equal opportunity, but just look at the market. Not everyone's got equal results. And I think the same thing, you're all saved by grace, you're all saved by Jesus Christ, but when you, just like Daniel says, as star differs from star in glory, so will we. There is some, there's different crowns, the crown of life, the crown of joy, uh, different things that you can receive, and not, some of them are just for, apparently certain, like a pastor can get the certain, like this certain crown, or martyrs can get this certain crown. There's going to be certain crowns that are not going to even be available for me in the calling God has given me. Again, I'm, I'm way off the notes. But it's like if you're called to be a martyr and be a pastor, there's going to be rewards that are available for you. And if you're not called to be a martyr or a pastor, there's no way you can get those rewards. But there are going to be rewards. Like you can't get the, 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 the high jump trophy first place if you're running the 100-yard dash. What, I don't get a, get a chance to win the high jump? Well, no, you're not in the high jump. You're running the 100-yard dash. I mean, it makes complete sense at a tra- sense that attract me. Different people get different rewards. Uh, I would say it's something similar to that. Okay, I'm way off account here, way off track, but we're talking about giving an account. These leaders will have to give an account for their work with the people in the church. Uh, they're told to submit to them and obey them, and again, we've got to decide at what level that is. If you're going to commit to, say, a, a group of believers, there's going to have to be some kind of a, a structure, there's going to be some kind of hierarchy. I would say again please forgive me if i am presumptuous but if i'm a leader of this bible study you're going to have to obey and submit to me whoa 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 but to what extent well i'm having class right now so stop trying to teach you see and i've had that problem people come to bible study and start asking questions with the intention to take over the bible study well that doesn't last well it's like we're done with that 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 they don't they don't come back again i don't care where they're spending their money i don't care where they go to church i don't care their life is their life. But when you're in my dominion of leadership, sit down, submit, and listen. You can leave early if you want to, but you're going to obey and submit. I mean, that's the extent. It's like, what, we have to obey and submit to Galen? Well, to this extent, you know, you're not going to come in and burn my house down. You're not going to come here and start going through my groceries. It's like, you're not even going to interrupt me. I mean, if you got a serious, you got a question, if we're, we're progressing here, that's going to be positive. You understand what I'm saying. So take that just expanded into a church setting. It's like if you've got the head pastor, the associate, you're going to have to obey and submit to whatever the structure is. I don't think that means, okay, since you come to the Generation Word Bible study, uh, I'm going to have to see your checkbook, where you're spending your money, and before you have any, like, uh, get married or something, I'm going to have to meet you, counsel you, and give you approval. Uh, yeah, I don't know at what point that would start, you know. Uh, see, that's what I think families are for. You know, I mean, there's family. I think, you know, maybe a daughter should talk to her father before she gets married. Uh, son, the same way, at least, you know, whatever. You understand what I'm saying? So don't choke on these words, obey and submit, because, you know, if I came to your house, I would have to, in a sense, obey and submit to some level. Uh, so that doesn't mean that the leader is completely in control. But I do believe what he's saying here to these people is it's much larger 
of obeying and submitting than what we have happening right here in my little Bible study where I'm teaching the word. It may extend a little bit further. But then there's a place where I think you're going to cross a line and you start meddling. And they're warned of that too. Paul warns of people that go from house to house meddling. When it talks about house to house, uh, they're, they're women, that widows, or they have nothing to do. And so they just go from house to house and meddle. And it, it's not just going through the neighborhood, but probably in the same context, they go from church setting to church setting. They're, they're, having, they're busy bodies with nothing to do. They just go and meddle. And they just kind of stir up strife. It's kind of like, no, no, no. Paul was even saying, no, shut that down. Not everyone gets to just run around and talk and cause commotion. Okay. Let's see how close we have on that. Uh, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. They're doing you a favor. They're trying to help you. As though, and, it's, and they see the thing is, and they'll be held accountable. They're trying to be, be, help these people. They're trying to help you, and they're going to be held accountable. If they're mistreating you, if they're manipulating you, if they're deceiving you, they will be, they're going to have to give an account to it. So you think about all the people that you say, well, that, that person's a false teacher, that person's a manipulator. It's like, well, yeah, you make your own decision, but realize they are, there is a day of accountability held to them. Same with me. I mean, I'm going to be held accountable maybe for my attitude. It's like, don't eat my cookies, just get out of my house. It's like, Galen, Galen, give them cookies at least. Make some coffee. It's like, no, no. It's like, Galen. I mean, that could be happening to me on judgment day. I'm going to expect my great rewards and God say, you don't get any. Where's Tony? Tony, come up here. Thank you for cleaning the house. Galen, what an attitude. Go sit over there. And Tony gets all the rewards. Um, and it says right here, let them do this with joy. And there's the word joy, not with groaning. And again, that word groaning comes from grievous labor. And it's just hard work. It's just painful. This includes the word pain. It's like, oh. Now, again, if you ever talk to any kind of church leaders, uh, you hear a lot of groaning it's like you know it's like because it's like people are difficult i mean and, and it, it, they cause problems and they complain about stuff i mean it's not just churches i mean it's, it's schools it's it's business i mean elon musk guess what he's going through a lot of you know elon i mean this is nothing I mean, elon's not, he's not a believer not a christian i'm not saying anything about him being a church leader but elon seems to be having a lot of joy right now with twitter uh, people are trying to cause him groaning and pain, and he's just not going to have any of it. <laughs> he's just, it's like, so he's staying up here. That's, that's, his, his, that's his attitude. But again, so I mean, if it's Twitter, if it's a church, if it's a school, if it's a big family Christmas gathering, you're going to have either going to be joy. I remember, to, I just, I ramble. I remember Tony sending out an email, oh, I don't know, maybe about 10 years ago. Uh, the, the boys had all gone off, and some of them had wives or girlfriends, and, and we're all, everybody's going to be home for Christmas in our house right here. And uh, she sent out an email. It's like, when we come together, make sure you come. I can't remember how you say it. You know how it phrased, tell us kind of how you phrased it. Oh, she can't even talk. She's got to feel good. She's got a cold. But it, it involved, you know, no criticism, no judging, no life coaching, you know, because like everybody's going to come together and just kind of just, hey, just accept everybody as they are. Now, again, we're not talking about being progressive and liberal and everything goes, but it's like they we're getting together to celebrate as a family. We're not getting together to say, well, now here, I can fix that for you in life coaching and, and everybody arguing on who's better. It's like, no. And, you know, kind of headed off because we've been through, all of us have been through family gatherings that become nothing but a shouting match. And it's like, oh my gosh, never going to go back again. And I haven't. Um, but it's like, we don't want that to happen here. So it's kind of like, hey, tone it down. Just come in here. It's, nothing's going to happen. You, you expect nothing. Just come. We're going to eat. We're going to have fun. And we don't even care what you think. And, and there's certain topics you need to avoid, you know, to keep everything smooth. And, and again, it's like, are you just being tolerant, accepting everything? Well, in this case, we're trying to focus on joy and just everybody come together and participate in this a family gathering. So we're going to gather as a family, and then we're done. And we're not going to, you know, you understand my idea there. So, I mean, this goes for everything. But he's talking about these homes. And you've got a leader that has stepped, called of God, accepted the responsibility, and is now ga- helping organize this home church or whatever the setting is. We're assuming they're home church. They don't have buildings yet. 
uh, that's going to come in Constantine's day or wherever they're going to gather. Sometimes in Solomon's Colonnade in Rome, they're gathering underground in the catacombs and underground tunnels where they had burials. They're just trying to find a place to meet. I mean, we meet, meet in schools. Sometimes we meet in community centers. We met at Hy-Vee. We've met at bookstores, you know, we, wherever you're going to meet. Uh, and they're going to have to get it organized. When they get together, try to cooperate. Follow the rules. Obey and submit, which means in your gathering, cooperate with what's going on. Don't be bringing pain for your leader because they're there. Help them have joy. Help them look forward to the gathering so that they can do their work because they're trying to watch your souls and keep you on the right direction. And this book seems to be a lot about teaching. It doesn't seem to be a lot about you know managing your life and and making good decisions in marriage or something. It seems to be uh, teaching, contrary to the false teaching. So I think we're within bounds to say that they are gathering together to help teach you the word so you can stay in the truth because the truth will set you free and help you be productive and you'll be fruitful and the whole body of Christ will be fruitful. And so this will give them joy. If they've got to come down here and, and worry about you know, your complaint about, well, you can see it in the book of Acts. When they, first thing they first thing they did, they started having complaints because the church was starting to provide the early church. I mean, we're talking about the first couple of weeks after Pentecost. They had money. People were giving money to the church, the, the, the apostles, and they were using it to feed the widows that had no one to take care of. They didn't have government programs. So those that had come to them, their widows, they'd start helping feed them. And then there was a complaint that the Jewish widows were getting more than the Hellenistic widows. Now, they're all Jews, but the Jews, Jewish widows, were those that lived in the community that were of the culture. The Hellenistic Jews were those that had been Jews outside in the Gentile world, and they'd moved into Jerusalem. They probably were more cultured to the Gentile world, spoke Greek maybe more fluently, but there's two different cultures. You had your home base of the Jewish widows. Then you had your Greek widows that had come in, and their families had died, and, well, they're not really of our community. It's like, and so the, the distribution of food, it's like, whoa, whoa, and they start complaining so the disciples, you can see the point, the disciples, they said themselves, now it's not right for us to start waiting on tables. The, the, this was the original apostles. It's not right, do you think it's right that we start waiting on tables? So we're going to, the apostles of Jesus, Peter and, and John, and they're going to start, they says, we can't neglect the teaching of the word. Find yourself seven guys that can oversee the distribution. We don't even care about the distribution of the food. They didn't even care about potlucks. They said, should we neglect the teaching of the word for potluck distribution of the potato salad? I think not. You want a potluck? Go have a potluck. We're going to keep teaching the word. That's right out of the book of Acts. Almost word for word. And so, but they did take care of it. They hired seven guys. Stephen was one of them. Uh, and, and they began to distribute the food and solve the complaint that the people had. So there's good, right away, as soon as people got together, they started complaining, but notice the disciples or the apostles, they went ahead to, they recognized, we're going to end up neglecting this to take care of your groaning. And they says, they didn't neglect this, they shipped that off, they farmed it out to, uh, you know, in my case, I'll farm it out to, a local restaurant, go somewhere, go have a, go eat somewhere. I'm not going to turn this into a potluck. Nonetheless, you understand the point. Anyway, that's what he's saying. He's saying that these are the same, this is the same church in Jerusalem some 30 years later. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. They're going to have to give an account of what they're doing. So help them do their job Focus on the truth, the word, and don't be bringing about this. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. What would be the advantage? If you've got to choose between the word of God and the complaints, if the whole, if your leaders, in this example, if the leaders can spend time teaching you the word, you're going to grow and be fruitful. You're going to become productive, and the church is going to grow. If the leaders have to spend all their time on complaints, how's that productive for you? It's not that, well, and I'll tell my kids this at school, you know, if you come in and cooperate, uh, I'll, I'll be in a good mood. If you come in and cause you trouble, I'll be in a bad mood. What's that advantage to you? All I'm doing is complaining. I'm just turning it on them. I'm just saying, you give me trouble, I'm going to give you trouble. That's middle school. 
That's not what this is saying. What advantage would if, if you just bring them complaints, they've got to deal with all these complaints, what's the advantage of you? They're just going to start complaining to you. It's like, no, no, that's not what they're talking about. What is the advantage of your leadership that's supposed to be leading you in the truth and the word of God, and they're just trying to solve all these problems? Your advantage is if you avoid this or deal with this somewhere else so these guys can continue doing what is advantageous to you, teaching you the word. That's what it's talking about. In a school setting, it'd be like, if I've got to spend all my time discipline, how is that to your advantage? I'm supposed to be teaching you reading or math. Now, in a middle school, they're not going to process that. They'd just rather have the chaos. You know, but as an adult, it's like, would you rather have your Bible teachers, your leaders, solving parking lot problems, or would you rather have them actually teaching you the truth? This would be of no advantage to you. Now, you've got a place to park. You come in, it's like, well, come back next week. We'll solve another problem. This is your growth. This would be your advantage. So that's, that's what that is saying. It's not saying that your leaders are just going to be like negative and complaining like a middle school shop teacher. Okay, uh, the points underneath this, these are the second generation leaders since the first leaders have passed. So again, this is the second generation of leaders. Again, you can see like James and, and Simon, they'd be uh, older. Uh, the writer con- uh, has confidence in these leaders. That's interesting. Sometimes Paul would challenge, like Paul in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians is challenging the leadership. He calls them mockingly the super apostles. Because they're challenging him. They're, they're undermining his teaching. So it's interesting, this writer is saying, your leaders are doing a good job. They're on the same page as this writer. He's not writing to correct the church leaders. And Paul, you can see Paul writing and correcting church leaders. He even tells Timothy in 1 Timothy and in Titus. Timothy was the, supposed to stop those. In other words, the word in the Greek, it's it, make them shut up. Tell them to shut up. They're teaching false doctrine. Shut them up. And these would be the leaders. So Paul is at war with the leaders in Ephesus at some times. He's at war with the leadership at Corinth. He's at war with the leadership on Crete with Titus. He's, he's telling you, you've got to stop. He's sending someone down to fix the problem. This guy, he's not sending uh, someone over there. I'm sending Timothy to you, and he's going to fix your problem. Or I'm sending Titus to the Corinthians. He's going to fix your problem. He's sending them a letter saying, here's some more teaching. Follow your leaders. They're trying to do the same thing, so, which is kind of an insight into a, a very positive letter. Um, keep watch means to be without sleep to seek after sleep to be watchful um, yeah in philippians two sixteen, paul was considering the day of evaluation as a leader there's one of the verses i was referring to chapter 13 verse 8 now he switches to himself that was the leaders now he switches to himself which kind of gives the impression he is one of their leaders also so he he's a leader that is absent you know he's a leader because he's writing them a letter he's some kind of a leader He's not, a, he's not a job application. He's not applying for a job. Uh, Paul may have been, in a sense, applying for a job. If you want to see a job application letter, that's the book of Romans. Because Paul has never been to Rome. He wants to come to Rome. So he sends Rome ahead saying, I hope to come to you, uh, and then you can send me on my way to Spain. So Paul's not writing to correct them. He's not writing to say, you're my church. The church of Rome was already started before Peter got there, before Paul got there, it was started on the day of Pente- uh, from the day of Pentecost. They went back, and the message started growing, uh, which is amazing. Peter's going to come later. Paul's going to come later. In fact, Paul's writing to a very mature church in Rome, the letter of Romans. And in, in a sense, it's an application letter. Will you accept me in my doctrine? And then I hope to come to you and strengthen you, and you strengthen me. And then I'll take an offering and you can send me on my way to Spain and keep going with the gospel. So there's a letter. Corinthians, he's addressing the leadership. Hebrews, who's ever writing this, could be Paul, is writing and and trying to support the leadership. Rome, Paul's writing to the Romans and saying, here's what I believe. And he's he's instructing them. And they're going to be agreeing with it, he assumes, and accepting him to send him on the ministry. He's trying to tap into the church. That would be more of an application letter. Again, that's, that's a really, again, rough way of saying Romans is an application letter. I would say it's much more than that, but uh, it's definitely not First and Second Corinthians. So pray for us, for we are sure we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. So in other words, he said, pray for us, and I vouch for myself that I, my conscience is clear. I'm not here trying to make money. I'm not got some kind of a gimmick. My conscience is clear, and we are trying and desiring to act honorably. I mean, we, there's a certain uh, ethical standard, a level of performance. We're trying to meet that and 
so far our conscience are clear, uh, which you say, we're good, you can pray for us. And that's an interesting uh, self, that's the self-evaluation of this letter, of the, the leader. Chapter 13, verse 19, I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. So he says, pray for me. And first, I am clear. My conscience is clear. I'm okay. I have positive desires. But more importantly, pray that we may come to you, come sooner. I want to visit you. So pray. But this is my main reason for praying is we want to see you. We want to get to see you. So we know this person is somewhere else. They could be in Rome. They could be in Italy. They could be anywhere in Asia Minor. They could be anywhere, you know, in the Mediterranean world. Uh, Those are your first guesses, Italy and Rome or in Europe, maybe Ephesus. But he wants to come visit them. So this person is somewhat familiar. This is one of the reasons, again, just for just for academic purposes i don't think this is paul because paul has already depending on when hebrews was written depends on when hebrews was written paul wanted to come to jerusalem in 57 a.d that was his whole goal first Corinthians, he's taking up an offering and he's going to come to jerusalem and remember when he got there it wasn't but a couple days and he's in prison and never got to do never got to visit the church except to visit and give them money, and the church, James and the church said, hey, we got a great idea. There's some people who think you're anti-Jewish here and against the law of Moses, so we think you should just go up to the Temple Mount and, and get your hair cut and take a vow, and here we got here, this guy, take this guy with you and pay for his, his, pay his vow too. It's kind of, you know, as a partner, and everyone will see that you're up there worshiping God and you're in line with Jews. Oh, yeah, yeah, great, a little bit of compromise, great idea. And so he goes up there, the Jews know who he is, they see him, they think he's got a Gentile with him, they shut the temple down because Paul violated the temple, everything's got to be clean because Paul brought a Gentile in. They're right, kill him, kill him, kill him. The Roman guards that come out, they rescue Paul from the group, bring him up, and and he asks to speak to the crowd because they don't know what to do with him, so he begins speaking, and once he starts talking, they start writing again, they realize Paul's a terrorist from Egypt, trying to blow up the temple really they thought he was a terrorist from egypt and they take him back and they got him all stretched out ready to whip him and he looks up and says uh is it normal to whip roman citizens it's like whoa and everybody disappears and the commander says uh you said you're a roman citizen well yeah i can hear the card it's like oh gosh here let him out. sorry can we get you some coffee here every place uh, we whoa, okay we got a misunderstanding we thought you were an egyptian terrorist it's like not really i'm a pharisee and it's like oh uh, and so the, the whole thing anyway that's another fun story but <laughs> The idea there is that was Paul's last time in Jerusalem, apparently. He never had any intention of going back, and even that time that he finally made it, it blew up in his face. So I don't think Paul would be considered a leader of the Jerusalem church or the Hebrew church, uh, although he might be writing this letter. It sounds like Paul. There's a lot of things that are, they sound, they agree with Paul, they sound like Paul, and that's why, again, this is not absolute, but I go with Barnabas. Again, this is I, this is just controversial, and some people would get upset. You know, they're online shutting it off. It's like this is one of Paul's epistles. It's like it doesn't say that. I mean, you know, but so and it could be. If it is, uh, you know, I'll be held accountable someday. Uh, I think Barnabas. And it sounds like him, and he's from Jerusalem. He would have been one of the early leaders in the church of Jerusalem. He's the one who, when Paul becomes a believer and comes back to Jerusalem in Acts. Everyone goes into hiding, ducking behind curtains and walls, like, there he is, and they're all hiding. And Barnabas says, whoa, 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 hey, come here, come here. And he introduces Paul to Peter and John, and Paul's killed some of their friends. Some of their friends are in prison because of Paul, but Barnabas makes the connection, and he's accept, Paul's accepted and has a meeting with Peter and John and James, the leaders of the church. And so Barnabas, is he was there, early days he's there he was the one that sold a field and gave the money to the church to help feed the widows he's a levite from cyprus he's a from the priestly tribe he's a levite you know tribe of levi uh and he's got some money and he is a cousin to mark the and so mark traveled with peter uh and so i think it could be barnabas he's from that town place and, and he's going to call he, his name, Barnabas actually means son of encouragement. His name is Joseph. His, his name is Joseph the Levi, Levite from Cyprus. But they called him Barnabas. That's not his name. It, his name is Joseph. 
Barnabas is son of encouragement. And he ends this letter by saying, I wrote you this, sh- letter of sh- uh, this short letter of encouragement. So the son of encouragement wrote a letter of encouragement. So in a sense, his name is on the letter, but not directly. You should not accept what I'm saying just because I'm, I'm saying it. I'm just saying that's where I go. Or it could be some people say Priscilla or Aquila or someone like that. But I don't think them either because this guy seems to be from the area, knows the people, knows the system, knows the temple, understands the theology, and is making all kinds of connections. Levites were the teaching tribe, so he would have been schooled in all of this rhetoric and all this thinking. Uh, And he's away. Uh, And we know that Paul writes about, to the Colossians, he writes about uh, when Barnabas comes, make sure you welcome him because he talks about him traveling up in Europe or uh, Asia Minor. But nonetheless, I, I would say it's that. But nonetheless, this guy is wherever whoever it is wants to come to them soon something's retaining him and here we go what we doing for time oh how did that happen it's 58 oh we have to finish next there's going to be another there's going to be another day of of hebrews oh my goodness uh i urge you more earnestly to do this in order that i may be restored to you the sooner then he's got his closing right there. We'll come back to 1320 next week. And then I just want to point this out. Uh, chapter 13, verse 22. We'll, we'll cover this again next week, but it kind of fits into what we're talking about here. I, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I've written you briefly. So there's that exhortation. <coughs> um, then chapter 13, verse 23. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released. So Timothy, this is a key in the visitation. Timothy has been released. Again, I think it's from prison. I was joking earlier. It, could, you know, it doesn't say. We just have to assume it's from prison. But now you've got to assume what prison and what crime and who was the one who brought the charges. Is it the Nero persecution? Is it an event in Ephesus, uh, some kind of a riot? Uh, what is taking place and why did they release him if it's the neuro persecutions uh, of see if it's 64 ad see 64 ad uh, you're not getting out of prison that's when they started killing christians because Paul, rome uh, nero burnt rome in 64 so that's almost like a timeline right there like you got 66 ad the beginning of the roman war, jewish wars with rome then you've got 64 ad rome burns and nero blames the christians and all kinds of persecution breaks out so no one's releasing Timothy in 64 A.D. 68 A.D. doesn't make sense. So that's why 63 A.D. would work here. Also, the problem with 62 A.D., uh, Timothy would be in Ephesus alone at that time because Paul is in prison for his first his house arrest. And when he gets out in 62 A.D., he heads to Spain. But where's Timothy? Timothy was with him, but he would have been sent back, likely, to Ephesus. Now, when he gets back to Ephesus, that's where Paul last was at, and it started a riot. And there was a, there, the metal workers. So Timothy may have gone back to Ephesus, been arrested, put in prison, and then released in 62, 63 A.D. And this person is there with the Italian group in, in Ephesus. Again, I, I'm making this up, but he's with a group of Italians. And he's waiting for, or Timothy's been released. Then watch this, and this helps explain this too. Our brother Timothy has been released with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Which means this guy, if Timothy's in prison in Ephesus, this person, say it's Barnabas, is not in Ephesus. He's waiting for Timothy to come to him. So is this person in Ephesus and Timothy's in Rome and has been released in Rome and is going to be coming? Was he with Paul in prison in 62 A.D.? So he's been released from prison. He really wasn't under arrest. Paul's under arrest. But when Paul's released, Paul goes to Spain. Timothy is released, and he comes to, so released from Paul's ministry. Released from prison. Yeah, you know, it's just hanging there. But he's been released from his responsibility, or he released from prison. He's coming to Ephesus, where Barnabas is at. And when he gets there, then Barnabas is going to come to Jerusalem, if Barnabas ever goes to Jerusalem. Uh, Barnabas appears to be traveling in that area because he's mentioned in the book of Colossians. We'll clean it up next week. It's, again, I don't know if I'm right or wrong for talking about these because it's really 
subjective, but it forces you to go back and take, put those verses in a chronological order and take them serious, that these people were traveling and it is historical. And so somehow this may be referring to something we can connect to or it's something we, we, don't even, we don't even know about it. It appears Timothy is going to live, we don't have the recording the Bible when he dies. He dies uh, maybe in, in, uh, when John's in Ephesus or in, on Patmos. He dies at the age of 80. Tradition has him dying because he steps out and tries to stop a procession of idol worship in Ephesus uh, and they beat him to death. He dies a couple days later. That's church tradition. Uh, but Paul does write in 1 Timothy, the reason I left you in Ephesus is he wants you to stay there and to stop the false teaching. So if you have a command in the Bible, Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy, stay in Ephesus. And church tradition has him living, dying, and being buried in Ephesus. So, and you have a scripture saying that's where Paul sent him. Stay there. You're done traveling. Fix this place. Okay, I'll pray, and we'll pick it up next week and close the book of Hebrews maybe next week. Father, we do thank you for the chance to look into these things. We ask that the Spirit of God would lead us and guide us into the things we're to do. We ask that we may be confident and be prepared to live a life that is pleasing to you, that we may stand before you someday and give an account for our life and our ministries and do the things that we've produced, fruitful, fruitful works that we have done and led others into. We do thank you for all this opportunity at this time in history and ask that we may be, remain faithful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for your time.